0: Greetings students, as always this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The New England Colonies. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Puritans and Separatists. So last time we talked about England's late entry into the game of colonization. We discussed the factors behind that late involvement, the societal issues, the initial training grounds and failures, and finally Jamestown's survival and flourishing. Today, we will transition to the New England colonies and look at how the background and the demographics of the people who came to the region, as well as their long held religious and cultural ideas, is going to make New England a far different colony than the Chesapeake. Now, the two major groups that will spur the founding and the growth of New England are the Puritans and the Separatists. Puritans want to purify or reform the Anglican Church, the Church of England. Of its lingering Catholic elements, such as ceremonies, bishops, robes, holy water, golden icons, etc. They believe that individuals could have a personal relationship with God in Christ by reading the Bible and listening to sermons and participating in group prayer rather than just going to church on Sundays. Separatists are more radical Puritans who want to completely separate from the Anglican Church as they believe it is beyond redemption so what are the goals of these various groups well as i said before puritans want to reform the anglican church and get rid of the last vestiges of catholicism but they also believe in a new birth meaning a transforming infusion of divine grace that liberated people from the profound anxiety over their spiritual worthlessness and eternal fate in addition Puritans want to purify society. They view England as a land of drunks, thieves, idlers, prostitutes, and blasphemers. The Puritans believed that the godly and the elect had to take charge of their churches and local government to introduce a moral vigor which would purify society. Puritans also held Calvinist doctrines as their beliefs, which rejected liturgy or Catholic Latin prayer and embraced, again, a personal relationship with Christ. They also wished to embrace simple and modest churches as opposed to ostentatious large buildings. And they would certainly have something to say about our modern-day megachurches. But that's neither here nor there. Puritans also believe in God's grace for the chosen, as in the elect, that God had already decided who was saved and who was damned, and that buying indulgences, or basically trying to pay your way into heaven, simply does not work. They also believe that a covenant of works will not save you, but instead is an outward sign of inner grace. And so Puritans stress the preparation for salvation, again, that personal relationship with God, reading the Bible, attending prayer meetings, and then again doing Sunday services and Puritans are obsessed with literally tallying up their sins and works to see what the status of their soul is. One man kept a diary which noted every single bad and good thing he did as he was obsessed whether or not he was going to hell. So what type of ethics do the Puritans hold dear? Well, diligence, hard work, perseverance, sobriety, thrift, which means saving and not wasting, No ostentatious house or fancy jewelry, you wear modest clothes, you have a modest home, you invest your savings, and you practice frugality. And lastly, kind of tied in with the last two, is delayed gratification. Save now to pass down more for your kids and grandkids. Build capital, because your true reward is in the afterlife. So who were these Separatists and Puritans? Well, most of them came from commercialized areas, urban areas that are tied to trade, and they were mostly from the middling sort, the burgeoning middle class of professionals. They were small property owners, skilled workers, artisans, merchants, and lawyers, but not just criminal and defense lawyers, but also patent and trade attorneys. This was not one unified group of individuals, They had many theological disagreements over the meaning of the Bible, because having a personal relationship with God means your own individual interpretation matters, and you will disagree vehemently with others and seek out members of the faith with similar views. And this is going to lead to local control of congregations. You get to control who your preacher is, who the church committee members are, what your church bylaws are. What I'm saying is that this is the beginning of self-government and republicanism, because if you have a say in your faith, why not in your local government, or national government for that matter? So why did the Puritans leave England? Well, the Puritans were tolerated in England for a short time, despite their agitating and grandstanding. They served as important commissioners, local magistrates, and even served in Anglican parishes. Now, despite the hostility from some conservative Anglicans, they were kept in these ecclesiastical positions because purging the pulpits would be difficult, as you need the Puritans to continue to preach and keep order in the counties. But this came to an end in 1625, when James I died and was succeeded by his son, Charles I. Charles married a Catholic princess and wanted to reconcile English Protestants and Catholics. He tapped Bishop William Laud in 1628 and made him the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1633, with the goal of reinstating Catholic ceremonies that had been terminated due to Puritan complaints. Laud wanted ministers to preach absolute loyalty to the king. He enforced Anglican orthodoxy and purged Puritans who balked at conducting high church liturgy. Church courts, without juries, also tried Puritan laypeople. Puritan tracts were censored, and those who disobeyed were branded. In 1629, tired of dealing with Parliament, Charles I dissolved the body and embarked on arbitrary personal rule for 11 years. The result was the flight of the Puritans. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Plymouth Plantation. Now for a bit of background. In 1616, Captain John Smith commanded an expedition to map the region, and wrote promotional literature that later appealed to the Puritans. In the process, one of his subordinates, a man named Hunt, took several natives captive, and this is going to figure prominently later. As a result of these kidnappings, native tribes learned early on to distrust the English, which is why we will see native conflict when Plymouth is founded. Most critically, the encounter ushered in a wave of epidemic diseases, like the one that raged from 1617 to 1619, just one year prior to the founding of Plymouth, which wiped out 90% of the native population around southern New England. Now, the Pilgrims are a more radical group of Puritans who wanted to separate from the Anglican Church completely. Many had been persecuted in England for their nonconformity, And in 1607, some went to Holland, known for its tolerance. But the Puritans did not want to assimilate and speak Dutch, so they needed somewhere else to go to practice their faith while maintaining their English identity. The Pilgrims were granted a charter from the Council of New England, which is a joint stock company that received their royal charter from James I. In 1620, a group boarded the Mayflower and set out for Virginia, it contained 102 men, women, and children. But a storm blew them off course, and they landed at Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Luckily for them, they landed near an abandoned native village with cleared fields. And there, they established what they called the Plymouth Plantation. Offshore, the Pilgrims drew up what was called the Mayflower Compact, which was, quote, a covenant in combining ourselves together into a civil body politic, which is going to be one of the first representative documents in American history. Now, some pilgrims actually expressed dissent and proclaimed themselves independent of any authority, but the dissenters were forcibly brought into the fold. Now, there is a major problem of founding Plymouth in 1620. The pilgrims had arrived in December, and a severe winter set on killing over half of the colonists. The pilgrims maintained a policy of avoiding natives for about four months until the natives approached the English, and after a ceremony which ritually purged their hatred of the people who had stolen their relatives decades earlier, they made contact. In March 1621, the surviving pilgrims met Samsoet and Squanto, representatives of the great Poconet chief Massasoit but let's take a side note here to explore Squanto as the poster child for the concept of the Atlantic world. So when we talk about the Atlantic world, we're talking about American history not in isolation, but emphasizing the connections between America, Europe, and Africa, and the fluidity of trade, travel, and the interconnectedness of events. You see, when John Smith mapped New England in 1616, his deputy Hunt took several captive natives, like I said. Well, he brought these natives to Malaga, Spain, where he tried to sell them into slavery. While there, a Jesuit priest identified the natives and helped them avoid sale into slavery. Now, somehow, Squanto made it all the way back to England, where he befriended the head of the Newfoundland Company. He worked as an interpreter in England and eventually went on a trade mission to Hudson Bay in Canada. Now, eventually, he made his way back to his home village at Pawtuxet, but when he got there, he found that all 2,000 people had died of smallpox, and instead of them, he found a small band of starving pilgrims holed up inside of his own village. Well, because of his work as a translator and his work with the English, he was able to communicate with the pilgrims. So isn't it fascinating? how one man can travel the entire Atlantic world and make it back at a critical, timely point and literally change the course of history forever. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the long arm of history and the ability for one person to change the world. Anyway, Squanto taught the pilgrims how to grow maize by putting fish in the soil with corn to help grow the crops and avoid the salty soil. He also taught them how to fish off the coast and Squanto lived with the pilgrims during much of this time. But despite Squanto's training, for the next year, the pilgrims could not grow enough to sustain them, and required regular shipments of corn supplied by the native tribes. Now while the natives understood this to be part of a reciprocal relationship of gift-giving that we discussed, which basically makes the receiver a tributary or a lesser ally of the dominant gift-giving power, the Pilgrims mistook this as a sign of Indian fealty to King James and his representatives, the Pilgrims. So, again, misunderstandings between Europeans and natives is going to be the name of the game. After Plymouth Plantation finally got on its feet, a feast was held that is later connected to the Thanksgiving holiday. Edward Winslow, in a letter written in 1621, described the event Quote, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent four men on fowling that we might, after a special manner, rejoice together after we had gathered the fruits of our labor, at which time many Indians coming amongst us with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went and killed five deer, which they bestowed on a governor. So this Thanksgiving occurs in the midst of various intertribal rivalries, and is more than just simple goodwill of the natives, to eat with the English. This is diplomacy and balance power politics. Now, the story of Thanksgiving has been told so many times that some believe the Pilgrims and the natives always got along. They did not. The Pilgrims did not love the natives. William Bradford said that natives were, quote, savage people who are cruel, barbarous, and most treacherous, end quote. And this is best exemplified in 1623, when the Pilgrims accused some Massachusetts natives to the north of plotting a secret attack. And though the evidence was flimsy, the Pilgrims faked a friendship, lured the natives into a trap, and killed seven people, and then mounted their leader's head to the top of Plymouth Fort as a warning to all. Now, the Pilgrims also segregated themselves from the natives. They did not want any Indians to stay with them and they did not want any of their people to stay with the Indians. But this did not have to be the case. You see, the example of Thomas Morton in the colony of Maray Mount illustrates potential alternatives. Morton came to power in a small outpost near modern-day Boston after the local governor was ejected because he was treating his colonists like slaves. Morton viewed the native tribes as more cultured and, quote, civilized and humanitarian than the intolerant European neighbors, end quote, and of course, the nearby Puritans. The Puritans hated Morton's toleration and a combination of Indian culture, and they were especially scared of the shared revelries between natives and Morton's colonists. Now, they were also jealous at the prosperity of Morton's outpost. So, in 1629 the Pilgrims arrested Morton for allegedly selling guns to the Indians, a charge that they had little evidence to prove. After a show trial, Morton was marooned on a desert island near uh, New Hampshire, and he nearly starved to death, except for the aid of local bemused Indians. Morton escaped captivity, he went back to his old settlement where he was again re-arrested and shipped back to England in 1630, where he then started a propaganda campaign against the Pilgrims. Regardless, in the end, the Pilgrims took Marais Mount by force, destroyed it, and stole their corn. After some attempts to rebuild, the settlement was finally burned to the ground in 1631 with the help of more Puritan settlers from Massachusetts Bay Company and John Winthrop. Despite destroying the supposed threat to their dominance, The Pilgrims were never able to turn a profit, and the Council of New England allowed some of their colonists to buy out their shares in the company. Plymouth Plantation declined over the years. It became a backwater, as more profitable and better-suited lands were gobbled up by settlers from England, which we will talk about in a minute. But perhaps the Pilgrims' most important legacy is their memory of religious dissenters who fled their homes to live in accordance to their dictates. But as we see, the real story is more fraught with dissension, conflict, and tragedy, and it is far less triumphal. Plymouth and Moray Mount are the dichotomies of settlement in New England, the violent path taken and the inclusive path not taken, of unfounded potential, and perhaps that should be Plymouth in America's greatest legacy. Please advance to the next slide entitled, The Great Migration. As I said before, conditions in England resulted in Puritans wanting to flee the repressive conditions and to use their industry to make their way in the New World. The result was a quick population growth that was faster and more concentrated than in the Chesapeake. Now, part of a reason for such a quick population growth was a shorter starving time. While the Pilgrims had a rough start, future colonists would be better prepared for the cold climate and tough growing conditions. Combined with the fact that the immigrants brought with them property and supplies and had more experience, this resulted in a lower mortality rate. Within a decade of settlement, there were about 1,500 inhabitants of Plymouth Colony by 1630. In 1629, five ships carrying 200 planters and their families sailed for Salem. And within a year, 1,000 Puritans would follow and quickly settle the coast of Massachusetts. This was done under the organization of the Massachusetts Bay Company, which is like the Virginia Company, a joint stock company, but unlike the VC, the Massachusetts Bay Company leadership relocated themselves to the continent, essentially creating a self-governing colony 3,000 miles away from the bishops that they hated. Once they were located in the New World, the governing board elected a governor, a deputy governor, and a legislature. This was the creation of a republic. The city of Boston was founded in 1630 by 700 Puritan settlers who left England for New England. The colony was headed by John Winthrop, a devout lawyer and Puritan leader who got the charter for the Massachusetts Bay Company. While aboard ship... John Winthrop delivered a sermon entitled A Model of Christian Charity and said that Puritans should be a city upon a hill, the model of Christian love and charity. Winthrop remained as governor until 1649 and ruled Massachusetts as a theological, biblical commonwealth, and he did not tolerate any dissent. Between 1600 to 1633, 3,000 settlers came to Massachusetts Bay alone, and 20,000 Puritans immigrated in the next 20 years. Entire families came over together, so New England will have a closer gender balance than the Chesapeake. Now, many of these settlers did not need to buy land from natives because another wave of infectious diseases decimated native communities in the late 1620s. So at first, there is not as much native resistance to encroachment since there was more land than people. And in fact, there was less than 1,000 Indians in modern-day eastern Massachusetts. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, The Expansion of New England. With the increase of settlers, colonists begin to expand away from Plymouth, and they tend to settle near rivers and move towards the interior. As colonists expanded, the first thing they did when they built a new town was create the two major institutions that will mark New England from Virginia. So what do you think they are? Hopefully you guessed, churches and public schools. Why is this? Well, these are religious communities who believe that you need to read the Bible in order to have that personal relationship with Christ. Hence, they are going to build a school to teach everyone how to read so they can read the Bible. And obviously, the building of churches is so that they can hold religious meetings throughout the week. And every single New England town is going to be centered this way, around the church and the public school, very differently than the Chesapeake. New England is also an area of smaller farms, because the soil of New England is very rocky, so there are less larger tracts of land that can be made into plantations. So the point is that these are more concentrated settlements, and while they are smaller villages, they are still more tightly knit than the loose plantations of Virginia and Maryland. So what are the motivations? Why do people want to move away from other towns? Well, in part, it's because of population growth. They left England because of population pressures. They view dense settlement as bad for religion and economic prosperity, And since you have lots of small farms and multiple sons, you are going to need more land to give smaller plots to your offspring to make them independent. And this is going to create the issue of land scarcity. Despite the major depopulation of native peoples, the massive influx of settlers and the dispersal of small farms will quickly suck up all of the available land. So future towns will be founded further inland, but now on land that needs to be bought from native tribes. And many times this was done without the permission of local leaders, which creates conflicts between colonists and tribes, and also creates conflict between religious leaders and frontier towns. You also have the motivation to expand based on religious differences. Remember, the individual interpretation of the Bible. If you don't like what the preacher is saying, you pick up, leave, start your own village, and build your own church. And this is exactly what Roger Williams will be forced to do. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Land and Labor. Due to New England's climate and geography, as we said before, you cannot support big plantations, which means there are no cash crops. And this will mean that New England will have a more diversified economy in order to be profitable. And diversified economies are more healthy, as we will see. The combined effect is that the region will lack major capital, and previously, historians thought that this lack of capital meant that they couldn't import indentured servants or slaves. But we now know that in fact, slaves and indentured servants did exist, just in not the numbers or in the long run, compared to the south. Now don't worry about the next bits too much. But the concept of freehold simply means that you are a small farmer with complete ownership of your land. Because land ownership is seen as critical to political participation. If you own land, you're your own master. And you can vote your own conscience without being influenced. In addition, we see the Puritan ideal of independent competency. Which is a view of land ownership and self-sufficiency in order to be a good citizen in a godly person. Together, this is going to help create decentralized government. We see lots of small villages practicing local government over their church and town charters, and this is a move towards future republics. And this is where we get the idea of republicanism, little r. So not like big R republicans, which is a political party created hundreds of years later. No, this is republicanism. The idea that freedom must be protected by educated, virtuous property owners who participate in government and oppose the vices of power and corruption. And this is the political ideology that sees its seeds beginning here in New England, and a different form of republicanism will later emerge in the Chesapeake and in other colonies, which will put a powerful political culture forward, which will one day lead to the American Revolution. Please advance to the next slide entitled Family Life. As with most Europeans, Puritans were patriarchal, with men in charge of their dependents. And just like in Virginia, we see the concept of little commonwealths, as patriarchs who rule their homes like a king would his castle. But due to the gender hierarchy, there are differences in New England family life. Remember, there's a closer gender balance, and you're going to need your family's help to make your small farm profitable. And so we see a Puritan concept emerge called the deputy husband, meaning that women could make economic decisions like selling the cloth they spun uh, or working as maids, uh, laundresses, uh, childcare, um, and other work that could market to other families in the village. And you also again see shared family labor um, along gender division lines. So the girls help their moms with domestic work, while the boys help their fathers plant and harvest the crops. And we also see that for the Puritans, marriage was both romantic and economical. People could get married based on mutual attraction and love. But elite families could impose marriage choices on their children to further their religious or economic connections, as well as build political power. And as I said, uh, there is a closer gender balance in New England uh, that facilitated different communities in the Chesapeake. You see, villages are tight-knit communities that facilitate education, religious pursuits, and mutual support networks. So women will be able to visit each other, They are midwives to births. They help in childcare. It is a more social setting than in Virginia, where distant plantations make it more difficult to have such tight-knit communities. And because these communities are so tight-knit, this also means that you have information circulation, like gossip. Women circulate information about their husband's pursuits. They judge other families' religious or economic or family and political decisions. See, gossip is power, since information is power. And gossip is also good for politics. You learn something to use against a rival, or you find a common cause with another dissenter to form a more profitable relationship. Lastly, abortion was not unknown to the Puritans either. Family planning was rudimentary, but women understood the cause and effect of pregnancy, even if women could not quite grasp it they all understood that certain herbs and roots, well known to the natives, could be used as methods of birth control and even abortion. And this whole process was called taking the trade. Now, a continuity in American history, punishing women for sexuality, occurs here as well. Uh, Puritan courts attempt to prosecute women for taking the trade, but they do not prosecute the men who forcibly impregnate them, nor the doctors who kill their patients in the process of performing a rudimentary abortion. I merely bring this up because when we think of the Puritans, we don't think about sex, and especially not birth control or abortions, but they are part of literally every single human society since the dawn of humankind. So, just giving you some perspective on that. Lastly, we have this image that the pilgrims always wear black. They didn't. Black is simply the most expensive color of dye, so when they pose for portraits, they dress in their nicest clothing, which is often black. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Commerce. As I said numerous times, the Grand Banks is great for fishing, and New England will become a massive source of fish for her people and other colonies. In 1641, fishermen caught 600,000 pounds of fish. By 1675, it was 6 million pounds, with a total of 440 boats and 1,000 sailors conducting this trade. Now, New England will thrive on trade, especially with the Caribbean. Crops, fish, and lumber will be traded to the British Caribbean. And Why do you think they need this goods? Because the British Caribbean is solely concerned with plantation agriculture to produce cash crops. They do not produce any of their own food, so they have a symbiotic relationship with New England. In return for these goods, molasses, rum, and sugar are sent to New England and the Chesapeake from the Caribbean. And so, as we see, New England is firmly connected to the triangular trade, that process by which goods are sent from the colonies to England, which are then traded to Africa in exchange for slaves. Which are then brought to the New World. It is interesting to note that 50% of the ships that service the Caribbean come from New England. And as one historian noted, quote, in effect, 17th century New England and the West Indies developed in tandem as mutually sustaining parts of an economic system. Each was incomplete without the other. New England freedom depended. On West Indian slavery. End quote. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Biblical Commonwealth. Ultimately, New England became a sort of Bible Commonwealth. Puritans believed that they had entered into a covenant with God, the belief that God favored them, and if they followed God's commands, their lives on earth would be healthy and fruitful. If they did not, God would punish them. In New England at this time, there is no freedom of religion, as non-Puritans were punished or kicked out. According to one Massachusetts Puritan, all religious dissenters had, quote, free liberty to keep away from us, end quote. All residents were required to attend Sunday church service and midweek religious lectures. And these colonies criminalized immorality. There were punishments for drinking, for violating the Sabbath, and even for dancing. In this environment, you're obviously going to need to train ministers. And so, one of the first institutes of higher learning, Harvard College, is founded in 1636, making it the first English college in the Americas. And it was specifically founded to train Puritan ministers. In addition, there was also a press built at Cambridge, Massachusetts, in 1640, again to print Bibles to spread religious messages. Now what this means together is that there is near universal literacy in New England compared to Virginia and the other parts of the Chesapeake, which have very low literacy rates. As I described in a previous lecture, because of this near universal literacy and the training of Puritan ministers, Massachusetts will have one minister for every 415 people compared to Virginia, which has one minister for every 3,239 people. Now, I'll pick up on this in a few slides, but we also want to touch on the fact that witchcraft is very much a phenomenon that is believed in among the Puritans. And in fact, the fear of witchcraft has a unfortunately long history in Europe where over 100,000 women are burned at the stake in less than 100 years. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Puritan Dissenters. Roger Williams is the first Puritan dissenter I need you to know. He was a preacher in Salem who ruffled the feathers of the leadership by saying that the Puritans hadn't separated themselves enough from the Anglican Church. He questioned the English king's right to take native lands, and he supported the complete separation of church and state, believing that government corrupted religion. And that's an important thing to note right now is that when these men and the later founders of the Republic say that they want separation between church and state, they're not only doing that to prevent religious persecution, but also to ensure that politics does not corrupt religion. So I I just wanted to give you that perspective to sort of understand the background of where these guys are coming from. Anyway, in 1635, the Puritan General Court banished Williams to England, but instead he went south, and he joined some natives and established Providence, the first permanent settlement that would become part of the Rhode Island colony, which became a major refuge for religious dissenters. And one Massachusetts Bay official called it Rogue's Island. Anne Hutchinson is another religious dissenter. She got in trouble because she dared to hold religious meetings in her home with men and women together. And she led these meetings herself, which violated the gender norms of the era. She criticized Puritan ministers for preaching what she called a covenant of works. And she criticized this covenant of works, saying that good works were signs of God's grace. And she claimed herself to have received divine revelation. This whole episode is what we call the antinomian controversy. And she is just one of several people caught up in this, including the minister John Cotton, the preacher John Wheelwright, and even the governor of the colony, Henry Vane. This disagreement over religious doctrine spilled out into politics, with elections hinging on this debate, and several people were banished before Hutchinson was even tried. In 1637, Hutchinson was tried by the Massachusetts General Court. She defended herself with specific references to the Bible. Ultimately, she was banished from Massachusetts, and she said on her way out of the church, quote, Better to be cast out of the church than to deny Christ. End quote. She walked six days in the snow before reaching Roger Williams' settlement at Providence Plantation, Rhode Island. And later she moved to New York City to escape Puritan control under the Dutch, where she was eventually killed in a native attack with her entire family except for her nine year old daughter, Susanna. The long term effect of this debate led to religious conformity in New England. Until the early 1800s. Please advance to the next slide entitled Pequot War. The Dutch residing in New York, then called New Amsterdam, had an extensive trade network that included natives living in Connecticut. The Dutch had used the Pequot as their favorite trading partners, trading guns and metal tools, making the Pequot a powerful foe. Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay Colony protested but could do nothing to stop it. But due to a series of misunderstandings and violence, the Dutch Pequot Alliance broke down as Plymouth and Massachusetts were expanding. From 1633 to 1634, in the midst of this diplomatic back and forth, an epidemic reduced the Pequots from 16,000 to just 3,000 souls, which would make it far easier for their conquest by the Puritans. The Pequots were alarmed by the expansion of the Puritans and their native allies and attempted to forge a pan-Indian alliance to stop European encroachment. They were rejected by other tribes allied with the Puritans, as well as those who had suffered under Pequot domination for decades. The last straw was the killing of an English trader in 1636 by the Narragasots, but the Puritans blamed the Pequots for an attack, because to the Puritans, they had very hard time distinguishing between various natives. The Pequots launched a series of raids throughout eastern Connecticut, besieging a Puritan fort and raiding the town of Wethersfield, where they killed nine people and took two young girls hostage, who were later ransomed by Dutch traders. The Puritans employed Narragasat and Mohegan tribal allies who raided Pequot villages. Remember the concept of mourning wars, as natives seek captives while the English seek eradication and enslavement. On May 26, 1637, colonial forces under Captain Marson and Underhill surrounded a fortified Pequot village at Mystic, Connecticut. The Puritans attacked while still dark, and they breached the palisade fort, but were driven back. The Puritans then set fire to the longhouses and the palisades, and in the ensuing conflagration, it trapped most of the Pequots inside. Hundreds of people. Perhaps 700 Pequot total died, many of whom burned to death. The survivors tried to flee, but they were gunned down by the Puritans who surrounded them. Behind them were two rings of Native allies who captured a total of seven survivors. A year later, the last of the survivors of these attacks were tracked down to a swamp near modern Fairfield, Connecticut, and after a sharp battle, hundreds surrendered to the Puritans. In the Treaty of Hartford of 1638, the English declared that the Pequot tribe was extinct, and 200 survivors were given as slaves to Puritan native allies, while the rest were sold into slavery in Bermuda in the West Indies. And as a result, there was a massive negative reaction in England, but the Puritans disregarded any criticism. Many viewed the war as divine retribution nothing short of God versus the devil. Please advance to the next slide, entitled War in Society. The legacy of this conflict is the Pequot's complete destruction as the survivors were hunted and enslaved. In addition, this illustrates the European proclivity for war to the hilt. No mercy or quarter. As a result of this war... The Puritan colonies of New England created for a short time the New England Confederation in 1643, an attempt to unite the church for the defense against natives in the Dutch colony of New Netherland. Native tribes, despite this war, will continue to be powerful allies to the Puritan colonists. Puritans will use tribal rivalries to expand and undermine other powerful tribes. The negative backlash will lead to limited attempts to Christianize Natives who are called Praying Indians. They will live in segregated villages with Native preachers trained by Puritan ministers like John Eliot, called the Apostle to the Indians. He learned several Amerindian languages and traditions and adapted Christianity to appeal to their culture. He also taught Natives the written language since they were mostly an oral culture. In addition, Eliot got a printing press in 1660 and used it to publish the Bible in the Massachusetts language to aid in the conversion of these natives. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Lead Up to King Philip's War. Medicom was the son of Massasoit, the tribal chief of the Wampanoags, one of the tribes who was friendly to the pilgrims. Over time, colonists increasingly became hostile to natives. The sons and daughters, and later grandchildren of the first settlers, had forgotten the help and the aid of the natives. The colonists numbered about 80,000 people in the colonies, with about 16,000 people of military age. Natives, by comparison, numbered some 10,000 dispersed between the Naragasots, the Wampanoags, the Mohegans, and the Nipmucs. Increasingly, Colonists had issues over economic, political, religious, land usage, and judicial issues with various native tribes. Settlers attempted to regulate Indian trade. The colonists violated former treaties, taking possession of native lands. Colonists attempted to convert natives and suppress their traditions. And the colonists used the courts to prosecute Indians who shot cattle that grazed on their crops or hunted in colonial land. The native trade with the Dutch and the French led to the possession of more firearms, which means they will have more firepower against the colonists. And the colonists are weakened because the New England Confederation had pretty much fallen apart in 1654. We also see a divide in native society between traditionalists and praying Indians, with traditionalists hating the natives who converted to Christianity as turning their back on their traditions and ancestors. Slowly but surely, Medicom prepared for war, as he was tired of all the abuses, and realized that a confrontation wasn't inevitable. A praying Indian, John Sassamon, told the Puritans that there was a secret conspiracy to wipe them out. And he is killed, and three natives are later brought to trial as the culprits. Natives killing a native, on native ground, so theoretically, this should go before an Indian court. But no, instead they are brought before a Puritan court, and they are executed. And this execution is the spark of Metacom's war. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, King Philip's War. I should explain for a second that Metacom is the native name of this tribal leader, whereas the English call him King Philip after Alexander the Great's father. In King Philip's War, there was initial great native successes, as native guerrilla attacks caught colonial villages off guard, and frontier settlements were particularly vulnerable. Out of the 90 towns in New England, 52 were attacked, and 12 were completely wiped off the face of the earth. Well, remember, the English are great with cultural sensitivity. So in response to these attacks, the colonists go out and commit a series of indiscriminate slaughters of other native tribes, particularly the Narragansett, who were neutral at the time. And these unprovoked attacks will bring the Narragansett into the conflict, further hurting the colonists. The result is a great deal of death among the English. However, the Puritans benefit from one common attribute of all wars with natives, the colonists never fight alone. They always have Indian allies. And this is the same with this war. The Puritans will gain native allies who dislike the Narragasots and the Wampanoags. And with these native forces, Metacom's troops will end up running out of food and ammunition and will have to withdraw into the swamplands. After a series of battles, Menacom himself is killed by a praying Indian and the coalition falls apart. Please advance to the next slide entitled Consequences. It is hard to understate the consequences of King Philip's War. Half of the English settlements were ruined. 1,000 dead colonists, with 3,000 dead Native Americans, made this conflict one of the proportionally deadliest wars in U.S. history. In addition, somewhere between 60 to 80 percent of the native population of southern New England died and the survivors of these resistors were sold into slavery. In addition, the New England Confederation regained its importance, but the English blamed the Puritans for disrupting the peace. As a result, royal charters were revoked, and new ones were implemented in the 1680s, leading to great dissatisfaction in New England. And had I been teaching this course 50 years ago, we would have been talking in different terms about this war. So I want to show you how historical uh, interpretations change over time. So initially, in the 1970s, this would have been described as a ruthless Puritan conquest. In the late 80s and 90s, we would be describing this as a heroic example of Native resistance. But now, with our new tools of the trade, we can interpret this event as perhaps a great Indian civil war, presaging later conflicts, that will shape american history. Please advance to the next slide entitled Witch Trials. It is no coincidence that after King Philip's War, there was a great deal of tension in New England. This was exposed in 1692 to 1693 during the Salem Witch Trials. Several local girls, aged 9 to 11, experienced various fits, perhaps epileptic fits. And soon Other girls experienced similar episodes. Three women were arrested, including Tipita, a West Indian slave. 200 people were accused, and 20 were executed, including 14 women and 5 men. And one man was crushed to death with giant freaking boulders for refusing to testify. This is the first example of mass hysteria and a show trial in the United States with O.J. Simpson and Casey Anthony as other good examples. The political turmoil regarding the receding of Massachusetts Bay Colony's Royal Charter and James II's attempt to create the Dominion of New England also left the colonists touchy and anxious about their status. Frequent Indian raids related to King William's War also made the colonists uneasy, searching for explanations. In addition... There were many internal disputes in Salem about property lines, grazing rights, and church privileges. In addition, Salem Town and Salem Village were divided and had their own ministers, so many historians believe that these witch trials were about settling local scores. Other interpretations signal out gender issues, as women are seen as more frail, more easily corrupted, and so many could have just used gender expectations to claim that they were temporarily possessed and confessed in order to spare their lives. The point is that this is an example of what happens when religion and politics get too close together, and especially when you start allowing dreams and unheard spirits to be entered into official court testimony. So, this is why we have separation of church and state for a reason. Well, that is all I have for you for today. I hope you're all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.